You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning. What's up, InFocus Church family? My name is Keevan Carley. I am the youth director here, and I am glad and honored to have this opportunity to teach the word this morning as Pastor Brent and Carla and their young kids are down in Florida on vacation right now, and these older uh, kids, adult kids, I don't want to call y'all kids, but that's what you are to them. Uh, I'm looking at Josiah here. They will be going down after services this morning. Uh, and so we're glad that they get to be on a break and have some rest as they have been laboring and serving all throughout this year, especially Josiah and Carla and Jazz included within that family who have joined me and a few others, uh, some of our other youth leaders on our middle school camp this past week for five days in Graniteville, South Carolina. And we had a blast. But they need a vacation, so it's, it's time for that. But I am excited this morning because I want to talk to you about water. I love water. And if you know me and my country song that I wrote about water, you probably think I'm about to sing it. Candace is giggling now. I'm not about to sing it. If you don't know about my country song about water, you're wondering why do you have a country song about water? Or better yet, why do you have a country song at all? But that'll be for another time. For now, let's just, let's just stick with water. We need water. And hopefully we all drink water on a daily basis, at least drink it. But hopefully we all drink as much as we should. And there are plethora of ways that we can get it, whether it's from the tap or the spring or the well. Maybe you drive out to Wrightsboro Road every week to bottle up some water. Maybe you have other delivery systems that come to your house and drop off some jugs of water. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you are anti-bottled water. But there are different, different preferences when it comes to water. Where maybe if you do drink bottled water, maybe you're like, nah, Aquafina will never be in my house. Maybe you are anti-Deer Park because, <laughs> all right, Andrew. <laughs> maybe if you know anything about Florida, Zephyr Rills, or however you say it, Zephyr Hills, trash. I can't stand it. But with all of these different Types of water, there's plain old water, then there's, as Bobby Boucher called it, high-quality H2O. There are brands that you love, brands that you hate, but regardless of where you find yourself on that spectrum, I wonder if you've ever heard of such a thing as water tasting. Kind of like how there's testing that you can have for cheeses or wines or a plethora of other things out there. You get your flights of water and different brands and different types from different sources, and you taste them all to see which ones you like. That there's a, a water sommelier. I had to ask several times, am I pronouncing this word right? Because I've never said it in my life. But there's a water sommelier who will say, this 
comes from the springs of Brazil. And, and you, you taste it and you go, hmm, ah, I don't know if I like that one. And as I'm looking at all of this, it sounds weird, but they're starting to explain during this research that, that they vary, waters vary in their source, they vary in their taste, and they vary in their price. And therefore, as you're tasting different waters, you will start to realize what you like and what you don't like, but you'll also note the differences. That there's a difference between getting water from a spring on Riceboro Road from getting water from an iceberg or from a glacier in Iceland. And therefore, what it takes, the tools, the resources to get water in Iceland will vary, as well as the transportation that is required, which will increase the shipping costs, which will increase the price. I found one brand of water from Beverly Hills that is iconically named Beverly Hills 90H2O. And I'm like, what in the world? And online, you can buy their water, I think it was six bottles for $42. And I'm like, I can't. I can't. I thought about like, man, it'd be kind of cool if I brought some out, but I'm like, no, nah, that's my paycheck. I can't, can't do that. But that brand, Beverly Hills H2, whatever it is, 90H2O, they also had a special luxury bottle that sold for $100,000 because the bottle itself was encrusted, the cap was encrusted with diamonds and there was like gold in the packaging. And this research, this website that I was on, it was explaining like, yeah, you've got some companies that'll do that, that will take a, a special luxury looking bottle and take your average typical tap water and put it in there, but they're upcharging because of the design, because of the merchandising. But then there's water that actually is worth paying more for because it came from Iceland or some other area where it took special resources in order to even get this water and retrieve it and bottle it and then to ship it. And so that pricing makes a little more sense. And here's what it's got to do with all of us. That as Christians, as those full of the living water, that is Jesus himself, those who have met Jesus, had their lives changed by Jesus, they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've surrendered their life to him as Savior, saying, Jesus, I am in need of you because of your perfect life that you lived that I could not, the death that you died on the cross, taking the punishment for my sin that I deserve, but you took it on yourself and you died and you rose three days later because of you as Savior and because of you also as Lord who rightfully has the authority to tell me what to do with my life. Jesus, I surrender to you. And those who have the living God dwelling within them, they pour out love that comes from a different source. They demonstrate joy. They demonstrate peace. They demonstrate patience. We demonstrate love from a different source where anyone can demonstrate those characteristics. That you can find joy in created things and exemplify some, some smiles and some laughter in life. That you can be patient with people who don't deserve it. But if you're a Christian, then the source that you receive your water from should flow out and demonstrate a greater quality, a greater value because of the source that it comes from. You see, a vessel is only as valuable as the liquid that it contains inside, where the more pure and the more refined, the more rare and the more distinct that the liquid is, the more valuable the vessel is because of what it carries. What should be characteristic of Christians is that the characteristics and attributes that we display to the world around us should be distinct. 
People who do not believe in Jesus can be patient and loving and all of those things. But Pastor Brent has been telling us that Christians are to live from the inside out. And he's been teaching that it's the the internal lives that we spend with Jesus that will ultimately lead to more Jesus being shown in our external life. Where the very same characteristics that anyone can show will not just be the natural means of life, but they'll be supernatural because of the supernatural God that dwells within us. And so I want to continue talking to us about this because this is where we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, which is our main text for today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's also in the YouVersion Bible app. If you click the events tab and search In Focus Church, you'll find that you can follow along with us there. Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, Love one another, be compassionate, and humble. Five characteristics that he's listing out here. Where if we remember the context within this series on on chosen exiles, that, that Peter's writing to Christians who are being oppressed and persecuted, Christians who are dispersed from their homeland, Christians who are being encouraged to be mindful and led by the reality that they have an eternity waiting ahead of them with a home that is not on this earth. And he's writing where in the preceding verses he had explained that as Christians who have the living water dwelling within them, that there should be a a particular attribute and way that they are interacting with their oppressors, with the people who are are uh, persecuting them and that are doing wrong towards them and treating them harshly, that still love should inhabit those relationships, the way they interact with civil authorities or with their masters or even with their unbelieving husbands and wives. That's what we find in the preceding verses. But he comes to verse 8 and he says, finally, all of you, all of you Christians, We've dealt with how you're supposed to interact with the world around you, but now I want you to focus in on how you interact with one another. And reading these surrounding verses is important because it's an effect. I encourage you to do it. We don't have the time to go through it today, but if you look at the surrounding verses, you'll see that Peter is very articulate in the way they're supposed to love the people who treat them harshly. And so now when we culminate to verse 8, it's like Peter saying, If that's how you're supposed to treat people who do wrong to you, then the way that you should interact with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people who collectively proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord, you should up the ante. The love shown between one another should be set apart where it should be harmonious. You should share this love together. It's one thing to love someone else who can't love quite as well as you. And that might be harder in a lot of ways, but it might actually be even harder for you to love one another, and that's why it's worth my attention now. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 8, that he is explaining, he's giving these five internal adjectives that describe the attitudes that Christians are to have. It's like he's painting a picture of the posture of their heart and what it should be, and he's not really giving action steps. He's not saying, do this do that, although the Bible has plenty of those instructions, he's describing an attitude, a disposition of the heart and of the mind, saying this is the way you should think. This is the way you should perceive. This is the way that you should feel towards one another. 
And so we're going to look at these five attributes and break them down a little further. Number one being harmonious. Depending on what version you're reading from, I read from the NIV, and in it, it says be like-minded, but a, a one-word uh, description or definition of what that is, is, is harmonious. Peter's writing saying, Christians, brothers and sisters, those who proclaim the name of Jesus, you should be harmonious. You should have the same mindset. Where it made me think of that game that you might have played. We actually, I don't think we played it during camp this past week. But have you ever played, it might have a name either, I don't know. But the game where you're partnered up with somebody and it's usually a person that, that you're really close to who knows you very well and you know the other person very well. And then there's a category that's thrown out to your group and your task is to say the first thing that comes to your mind and hope that it lines up with the first thing that comes up with your partner's mind. Where ideally... It is someone who actually is like-minded with you. You guys share the same thoughts where if it's, hey, what's your favorite dessert? Then somebody would share with me the love for cookies that I have, and that would come out of their mouth. But what oftentimes happens is you'll get with a friend that you know well, but aren't necessarily like-minded with. And so what comes out of your mouth is you're thinking, what will my friend say? And they're thinking, well, what would Keevan say? And the answers end up coming out differ because you're trying to think like the other person, and that's where things go south. So if we know that is true in a game, but yet Peter is calling these Christians to be harmonious and like-minded, we've got to realize that he's not saying, hey, think like the person next to you. He's saying, think like Jesus. Share the same mind of Jesus. My interests and passions are bound to differ from yours and everyone else in the room. There might be some who enjoy the things that I like, some who think the way that I think, but not all. And so if that's the case, then we need to see the mindset that Jesus had. And we'll find it first described in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and we'll expound upon it a little later but here it's Paul writing in Philippians, and he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, where the like-mindedness that should be characteristic of Christian fellowship is adopted from the attitude of Jesus Christ himself, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that Jesus Christ gave of his life. No one took it from him. He laid his life down. He was willing to show compassion to those that he interacted with. He was willing to serve. Christ came into the earth not to be served, but to serve. This is the attitude of Jesus that Paul in Philippians and Peter in 1 Peter is writing, saying, Church, if you're going to proclaim the name of Jesus, then you need to have the attitude of Jesus. That the way that you interact with one another should reflect the way that Jesus interacted with you as his disciples. This like-mindedness, it pursues the unity that Jesus prayed for his disciples to have. Not just the disciples of old, but the disciples within our day today. That Jesus prayed saying, Father, just as you and I are one, just as we've been united and in perfect harmony since the beginning of time, Jesus prayed that in Focus Church and his church at large would be united and harmonious, acting 
as one. Because ultimately, the glory of the Father God is worth the price that we have to pay in order to live that out. So I want you to consider, when's the last time that you made a sacrifice, not out of obligation, not because you felt like you had to do it or like all eyes were on you, but you did it because you genuinely shared the attitude of Christ. That is better for me to serve than to be served. It's better for me to give than to receive. When's the last time that you've done that? Or better yet, the last time you had an opportunity for it. Because that'll put a mirror in front of our hearts and faces to say, did I act on it or did I let it pass by? Before we move on to the next adjective, I want us to remember again the context in which this is being written. That Peter is writing to Christian exiles, knowing the suffering that they're experiencing, that is coming in on all sides and angles, and yet he's saying, be harmonious amongst one another. And the second adjective he's listed is being sympathetic. In the NIV version, it says to be sympathetic, where for us in our modern-day language, we kind of disassociate with sympathy and say, hey, no, empathy is better. But in the old language, which Peter is writing in these old historic times, in the Greek, the word for sympathy actually more so lines up with our modern-day definition of empathy. It means suffering or feeling the like with another person. So either you suffer with someone or you feel the suffering with them where you could stiff arm and say, that's not my problem. Peter's writing saying, no, 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 no. You lock arms. You share the suffering with one another. As Paul wrote in Romans 12, 15, mourn with those who mourn. You share it with them. The image here is that when one person hurts, if the Christians are to be like-minded and share the attitude of Christ, then the pain is to be shared. One doesn't suffer alone, but there is heartfelt sympathy that produces compassionate joining in on the suffering and says, if it's you, then it's me as well. I think of Jesus in the Gospels when it lists that, that Jesus was responding to the news that Lazarus was sick. And the story clearly articulates that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that the story would end with the Father God being glorified. He proclaimed to the relatives, hey, Martha, Mary and Martha, this is not going to end with your brother's death. So he knew what was going to happen. But when Lazarus, or actually it led to Jesus taking his time to actually get to where Lazarus was to provide the healing that was needed, and when he received the news that Lazarus died, even though Jesus knew the end plan, the end result, that it would result in a resurrection, Jesus still wept. He wept. He was saddened by the loss of life. He was deeply moved by the sting of death, and he wept because of it. That the Savior, who had all the power and the authority over nature and life itself, to bring this man back to life, chose to weep with the relatives and the community that was weeping. He shared their suffering. He was sympathetic in his interactions with them. 
Third characteristic, brotherly. The NIV said to love one another. Love one another like a brother or a sister, which I find very interesting, especially in our times today, but then even in the Bible context, because we see that especially uh, it was most clear in the uh, I guess the father figures of the faith within their relationships, that brothers didn't always get along well. They did not. We know that to be true in the life of Jacob, in the life of Joseph. And so we see that this, this attribute of being brotherly towards one another is very interesting because naturally it's not really possible for us to reflect the love of Jesus amongst brothers and sisters if naturally we tend to war and hate one another. It's not the typical brotherly love that we think of. Even as a Philadelphia Eagle fan, where's my brother Sean? Maybe he's second service. I know there's at least one other Eagle fan in here. But you don't have, oh, amen. Amen, sister. You don't have to be a Philadelphia Eagle fan to have heard that Philadelphia fans across the board in various sports, not just football in the NFL, but Philadelphia fans are horrible, Right? And ironically, it's known as the city of brotherly love because of the Greek root word. But if you look up Philadelphia fans, you'll see that they're so passionate about their sports teams. The 76ers, the Eagles, uh, whatever the baseball team is, because I don't know, I don't watch that. But hockey, that their fans, they're passionate about their sports and their athletes. But they're so passionate that what can fuel a flame of encouragement when there is success can also fuel a flame of discouragement when things aren't going the way that they expect. And so it turns into boisterous interactions where I, I actually saw, I won't quote it because I can't say it, but there's an a athlete, an NFL uh, football player who used to play on the Philadelphia Eagles, and recently he was asked, like, hey, what's your favorite and least thing about that city? And in explicit language, he said, man, my least favorite thing is the fans. He said that his car was stolen after they won a game. He's like, who does that? Like, and I'm looking at him like, that's, that's so ironic. It's so ironic because it gets back to what I mentioned earlier, that, that water, it's, it's easy or it's natural to be able to show love for one another because God created all human beings for relationships. So to some natural degree, we love one another and we can be patient and we can be kind, but there's a supernatural element that comes through the fruit of the Spirit through which the Spirit must be present for it to be distinct and of high value and of purity and refinement that will ultimately point to the glory of God. So here's why this is more than just trivial information. The Christian is called to a greater depiction of brotherly love, one that Peter is writing saying, hey, this is actually, again, it's from the root word in the Greek where he's saying this is a a Grecian ethic. The Greeks naturally will show brotherly love to one another. It's important to them. But as Christian exiles, it should be even more important to you. That in this political climate, even historic times and even modern day today, in a climate where it's so easy for you to have an opposing view about what should happen right now, for you to have an opposing view about what you should do as a people group, for you to have different opinions about how you should interact with the authority figures around you, I don't want that to get in the way of the way that you love one another. 
Because if people can exhibit love for one another simply because they share the same culture and background, how much more should people be able to love one another when they share the same Savior and Lord who loved them when they least deserved it? Jesus said that the way that the outside world would know that a disciple was his is by the way that his disciples loved one another. That from the outside in, right, Pastor Brent said we need to live from the inside out, but the outsiders will be able to look in and affirm that this Jesus is real by the way that the Christians are loving one another. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a deep, intentional, internal life that is spent saying, Jesus, help me look more like you. Help me to love my brothers and my neighbors the way that you did. That when we think about the Lord's Supper and that picture of of Jesus serving his 12 disciples, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, that in this setting, Jesus is interacting and loving all of the ones, which is each and every one of them, who would eventually turn their back on him. And he knew this ending. Jesus even was loving and serving on Judas, that Jesus kept Judas close, even though Judas was backstabbing him moment by moment until it led to the full-on betrayal of turning him over to the Roman guard. Jesus still loved in a supernatural way because of who he is. And therefore, the same goes to us, where what we should be exhibiting is a Christ-led love, a living water filled, flowing out and pouring out, where what comes through us is from the source of the living God because it shows who he is by the way that we love one another. And in our middle school camp this week, I was trying to explain the same concept, but packaged a different way to our middle schoolers. And I was challenging them to think about what it would look like If they went back to school this school year, whatever it might be, Greenbrier Middle, Evans Middle, Lakeside, and they showed a different kind of love. They chose to surrender their lives to Jesus in such a way where they demonstrated the wonderful light that he and he alone brings into our lives in the midst of a dark world around them. And I offer the same challenge for you. That if you can love one another well here, and when we get out of this building, and we go and do life together as brothers and sisters in Christ throughout this city, that the dark world around us, be it in our jobs or in our restaurants, in our communities that we find ourselves in, that they get to see what we do to one another, the way that we treat one another, the way that we serve one another. And they get to say, wait, why? Why are you willing to give that much of your time? Why are you willing to sacrifice that much of your money that you need for yourself? Why are you willing to go and lay down your resources for someone else? We get to point to a pure and refined, unblemished source of living water and say, that's why. Because of who he is and what he's done for me. The fourth characteristic Kind-hearted. This one was very interesting to me. The NIV version just says, love one another and be compassionate. But if we break it down into one word, I'd say it means to be kind-hearted, to be compassionate, to be tender-hearted, is to be kind-hearted. And this may seem similar to the attitude of sympathy, 
but it's separate for a reason. See, sympathy is, is mainly sharing the feeling of suffering with one another, but it doesn't even quite get to the point of acting on it. Where in the scriptures it says a lot that Jesus had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion on the ill. Jesus had compassion on the sick. Jesus had compassion on the lame, and it would lead to him acting on it. And that's what kind-hearted is describing. Sympathetic is saying, I feel with you, which really debunks this whole idea that, man, we don't need emotions at all. Sure, there is a spectrum where we can lean too much into our emotions and be led by them, but then on the other end, we act like they don't matter at all. But Jesus is saying, no, you feel, right feeling matters, which requires that we be emotionally healthy enough to be able to know when there's right feeling versus wrong feeling. But sympathetic means that there's right feeling of suffering with another, but kind-hearted is saying, no, you're going to go another step. You're not just going to feel with them, but you're going to do what you can about it. Both point to the need for one to pursue this emotional health. But the Christian cannot settle for this hard-heartedness that views emotion as soft or because emotion is something that is, you know, of this modern age that, that we don't really associate with our upbringing because Jesus is saying you have to feel it in order to act on it. You have to feel the suffering with them. And it's what he's calling us to through Peter's authorship to be moved to act on behalf of another because of the emotion felt when witnessing the suffering of another. In some ways, I think that we've lost the depth of what it means to be kind, where I don't want to necessarily spend a bunch of time on this as my time is running out anyway, but I couldn't help but think about how many people I've heard say, you know, the Bible says to be kind, but it doesn't say to be nice. That's come out of probably all of our mouths. I, I've said it before for sure. But when we actually take time to think about it, the challenge I want to give to us is that when we're tempted to say that, or it slips out of our mouth off of a reflex, if we take a moment to really reflect and examine ourselves of what that actually means. Because if kindness is this compassion and this tender-heartedness that leads to action and that sympathy that Peter previously or earlier called us to is the actual feeling with it, then wouldn't that mean that niceness is wrapped up somewhere there in between? That if we think of it this way, the Bible is clear that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, so it's something that supernaturally God is producing in us, then niceness... It's really low-hanging fruit. Niceness is like being pleasant or being polite. And we could go into, no, I don't want to be politically correct. But if we're saying, no, I'll be kind and act with compassion, act with tender-hearted feeling inside where I'm moved by the suffering that I see, is it really Christ-like to say, I don't care about coming off in a way that is pleasant. I don't care about coming off in a way that is gentle, even though it's a fruit of the Spirit. And that really intermingles more with nice than it does kind, if kind is more of the actionable side of it. And I know it's not an absolute, because there are times that we can be kind without being nice. And it's appropriate that I had to talk to some students this week in a way that was kind but was not nice. 
But at the same time, it's not an abandonment of the whole idea because of the pursuit of being Christ-like means that I'm trying to be sympathetic as well as kind-hearted, then I should be willing to let God lead me in a moment to what it is that is needed. The last one, humble. Peter writes that we should be humble towards one another. A definition I looked up, I felt like was appropriate because of logic, but then also because we see Jesus being a clear image of each and every single word in this description. If you're taking notes, you can write down that humble means lowly. That scripture tells us that Jesus made himself low. He stooped down low. Humble means modest. In a moment where you can brag and boast about yourself, you choose not to as Christ himself did, that humble means meek, that Jesus himself taught about the meekness and how they shall, those who are meek will inherit the earth where he ultimately demonstrated that himself. Humble can mean submissive, that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, that even when he prayed, saying, God, take this cup from me because I don't want to have to suffer and die this painful and excruciating death on the cross, but nonetheless, your will be done, not mine. He submitted. Humble can mean opposed to proud or haughtiness or arrogance or assuming. And surely, there might be different images that come to your mind When you think of this definition, when you think of what it means or looks like to be humble, someone who is modest, never boasting of themselves. Maybe you think of someone like Steph Curry who definitely has some moments where he shoots the shot and then turns around before it even falls and it's like, I don't know about that. Confident for sure. Maybe you think of Kendrick Lamar because of his song. Maybe you've got someone in your life that has demonstrated this humility in a way that you can't even articulate because of how beautiful it is that this person is someone that you would do anything for because you know that they would do for others before they do for themselves. This humility, something that Jesus himself embodied. Which is worth emphasizing because it means that God's word is not describing characteristics and attributes and an attitude that Christians should have that Jesus did not have himself first. That the Bible is not calling Christians to look a certain way that doesn't already look like Christ. So we read Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 earlier, but at verse it continues from there. In verses 6, 7, and 8, but we'll start back in verse 5 again. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God himself, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus made himself low. 
stooped down and coming to earth, not as a, a man and a king that was already ready to reign, but in the form of a baby. That he experienced this life from child to full adult. He experienced the sufferings that you and I know of in this life. The loss of life of a loved one. The betrayal of those that we love. Jesus experienced this. Jesus witnessed the plaguing of illness and abuse. He took on abuse himself. The king of kings made himself low. He was in his very nature God himself. But didn't say I'm going to use this to my advantage so that I don't have to die. So that I don't have to suffer. So that I don't have to experience pain. But he took it all upon himself. When he could have distanced himself and said, nah, I'm too good for that. I don't need that in my life. Y'all brought this on yourselves. Jesus stepped in and experienced the suffering with us. His humility was demonstrated in his obedience to the Father, that he submitted to the will of the Father God, as should we. So again, let's remember that in all this, Peter's writing to Christian exiles who are suffering, who are oppressed, who are persecuted, which I think can translate to us to mean that it doesn't matter what we're going through in life, no matter how difficult, no matter how easy, In both and everything in between, these attributes and characteristics should be present in our lives. This should be the attitude of the Christian as they navigate life. Not that they're going to be perfect because we are not Jesus, but that if we have this living water flowing in us, then what should be coming out in our interactions, especially with one another, so that the world around us can see Jesus? should be these attributes that Jesus had himself. That we should be harmonious, that we should be sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble. Because if we can be this way to one another, then it will bleed off into the way that we are to those who do wrong against us. To those who are so far from Jesus that you would think that they don't know what it is to love at all, that we get to put him on display by the way we love one another and by the way that we respond to those around us. See, I think that when we think of drinking water, that it should be pretty universal. We need it to survive. It quenches thirst. When we're thirsty, it should be refreshing. And any clean drinking water can do that for us. But again, the pure the undefiled water that lives in the life of the Christian, Jesus himself, through his spirit, should have a greater taste. It should come off as refined. That if there was a water sommelier saying, taste this one, try that one. What about this one? And this group of people, they offer it in this way. But that when it comes to your life as a Christian, should taste better than any others. I want to call us to worship right now by making ourselves humble in this moment and simply acknowledging that we are not perfect to live this out. Again, there's not action steps in saying, do this and don't do that. It's saying this is an attitude of your heart that should be present. And if it's not, any of these five, 
then we should be responding right now with that heart posture of surrender. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and the worship team can come up during this time, but I'm going to pray for us. But similar to how Pastor Brent led us in a, a, a corporate prayer a couple of week, within the last couple of weeks where we read the Lord's Prayer on the screen together, I'm going to pray for us first. But if your response is truly one that says, God, I want to be more harmonious. God, I want to be more sympathetic. God, I want to be more brotherly. God, I want to be more kind-hearted. God, I want to be more humble because I can look in my life and see that I'm lacking. I can see that naturally it doesn't flow out of me. So I need your supernatural help. If that is your response, then the time now where you will be able to read a prayer in Psalm 139 where we talked about this in camp that the heart posture of David in writing this was a prayer of surrender. That David surrendered saying, God, search me. Point out anything that is offensive to you. Point out to me, test me to know these areas of my life where I'm not harmonious where I tend to link up with the groups of people that think the way that I do, even if it's not the way that Christ thinks. Test me. Put pressure on my life so that I can see and you can change these areas where I am far from humble. And this is just a regurgitation, really, of the message I did last month on holiness. And I think you could ask, sure, why again? And I think the answer is found in the Word. That Peter or Paul or whoever's writing in the gospel letters is saying, hey, this is what it means to look like Jesus. We can sure say, man, I want to be, you know, so holy that I hear the voice of God and God tells me what to do or where to go in a moment. And we should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in that way. But even more so, we should be sensitive to what God is doing in us. Because if we go to a place or go to a person and we're showing something that doesn't look like Jesus, then we're doing a disservice. God can still use it, absolutely. But he wants to do a work in us so that the work that he does through us can point to his name with all the glory that he rightfully deserves. So join me in prayer. Dear God, Father, we thank you for your example, Jesus that you showed us what it looks like to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you also showed us what it looks like to love our neighbor. But God, I thank you that you're not just an example, Jesus, but that through your perfect life that we could not live, through your death that you died on the cross in our place, and through your resurrection, you're a savior, Lord. And so, God, if there's anyone in this room or who's watching online who is responding to this gospel and this good news that even though they're not perfect, Lord Jesus, that you have made the sacrifice through which they can have relationship with God the Father, I pray that you draw them and that they will cry out to you from that place and admit their need for a Savior, that they will trust you to save their life and to lead their life in the way that will bring glory and honor to their name to your name, Lord. But God, I pray also for those of us who are saved, who have relationship with you, but recognize that we're not Christians who demonstrate the attitude of Jesus Christ the way that we should. God, that you will minister to us, 
that you will point out anything in us that's not pleasing. And that in this moment, as we recite Psalm 139 together, God, that it will be heartfelt, that it will be genuine, that we will worship in spirit and in truth so that as we sing this final song here in a few minutes, Lord, flow, O river, and flood our thirsty souls, God, that it will fully be in surrender. God, you're worthy. So if you'll stand with me right now, We'll put Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24 on the screen. And I want you to read it with me out loud, but with the heart posture of surrender. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God be glorified in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at In Focus Church.